This is James Santusi, and you're listening to Farming on Mars. Hey, I'm Sierra Ware, and this is Farming on Mars, a podcast that tells the stories of agriculture on the South Plains of Texas. I grew up on a cotton farm in the world's largest contiguous cotton-producing region, and now that I'm a college agronomy student myself, my love for farming and having great conversations with those who have come before me has only grown. This is about the land here around the South Plains, which can be just about as harsh sometimes as what I would imagine Mars being like. With each podcast, I want to highlight and hear the unique stories of this region's farmers, agronomists, business people, and anyone else who's involved in agriculture here on the South Plains. They hip up, we list up. They run do-alls and we run sand fighters. It's almost like a whole nother planet in the Mississippi Delta, but both the Delta and the South Plains are huge agricultural areas with a passion for cotton. I had the privilege of interviewing one of the most knowledgeable and entertaining cotton farmers I've ever met. His level of mechanical knowledge is something that I really aspire to, and I got the chance to ask him about everything from how the farming landscape in the Delta has changed to the many revolutionary mechanical experiments that he worked on while working at the Stoneville Experiment Station. So let's go ahead and jump into this week's episode with Delta cotton farmer, Mr. James Santusi. I'm James Santusi, 73 years old. I farm in the Mississippi Delta, small farm, all cotton, been cotton for 100 years, never Never planted a soybean or corn in my life. Don't know how. Cotton has been good. Uh, my daddy made a living here. Growing up, I helped him. And I worked at uh, the experiment station about 40, 48 years. And because I always farmed while I was working in the afternoons, Saturdays, whenever I had to. <clears throat> now I'm retired from there. And I farm full time, still the small acreage. Probably the small, I know I am the smallest farmer left in Washington County. As I got older, because I helped daddy all those years, but as I got older, I knew daddy couldn't pay me because he's a small farmer, same acreage. So I went to work at the experiment station where I learned a lot, but I, when I'd come home from work, I'd help daddy on the farm. So the things I learned at the experiment station, I adapted to the farm with Daddy. And his yields went up just through through uh, technology that he didn't know about, uh, that I learned at Stoneville. I'd come home, I'd tell Daddy, I said, we need to change this plant and put this spray rig on there and use this. He said, and Daddy always obliging, yeah, do it, whatever. He could tell me whatever I wanted to do, he would do whether I'd be right or wrong, most of the time I was wrong. But anyway, he said, do it. So we went from bale acre cotton, bale and a half acre on a good year, to two and a half, three and a half, four bale acre cotton, through better seed, better management, same old equipment, but just better techniques. And I used all that knowledge I got at Stoneville. I give them all the credit for what I know now. They helped me a lot. They taught me a lot. I learned a lot. And I put all that knowledge to work here on the farm. And I think it's paid off. Uh, 
as like I said, I grew up here and went to high school. I'd get off the bus, I'd help daddy on, you know, we had cotton sacks back then, trailers, and we'd pack them and all that. And I loved it back then, but now I realize now it's a lot of work. But uh, that's what everybody did. And like I said, as soon as I graduated, I did some military time and uh, went to school at uh, Mohead some, learned some uh, different traits. And, but most of it I learned out there at Stonewall. Could you talk a little bit about some of the mechanical experiments that you worked on at Stoneville? When, when I worked at Stoneville, it was in the engineering department. Like I said, I stayed out there half, most of my life. We, uh, the first thing I guess comes to mind is the recirculating sprayer. We did not have Roundup Ready beans. The bean fields in the Delta were mostly Johnson grass patches. The cotton we controlled with cultivators and, and hand chopping, and, and we controlled everything. But the bean fields were kind of, uh, that's your second secondary crop in the Delta. <clears throat> now it's, a, it's your primary crop since uh, Texas took all our cotton. <laughs> but anyway, so they said, how are we going to kill this Johnson grass? So one of the scientists told me, said, James, man, we got a chemical that will will kill Johnson grass. I said, give me some of it. He said, it will also kill the beans. So the Johnson grass is two feet taller than the beans, so we made a, we call it a recirculating sprayer. We used regular T-jet tips, but it was a straight stream. Right over the beans, from left to right and from right to left, and we had recovery tanks catching the residual that did not hit the Johnson grass, it was back into the boxes and returned back to the tank. So it recirculated. You could do 100 acres with a, a gallon of chemical just about because the only thing that was used is the, the chemical that hit Johnson grass. Well, come to find out, there was glyphosate that was Roundup back, heck, I can't even remember what year it was, a long time ago. So... That worked really well. The Delta and everywhere else just took off. We want a recirculating spray. All the manufacturers started building them out of stainless steel, wooden rust, last forever. But then the breeders came up with Roundup Ready Seed. We didn't need uh, the recirculating spray anymore. So it ended up in the junk pile. And another thing I can think of is the parabolic subsoiler. There was Dr. Tupper. He said, man, we can build this curved shank right here. And at the time, everybody was using a straight shank, two-shank subsoiler behind the tractor. Very hard to pull. He said, we can make this parabolic curve, and it, it will pull a whole lot easier. It's been tested at Auburn for years, but nobody has put it to practice. So it got on the, on the floor, and we cut out, I cut out a parabolic shank, which is just a curve, uh, built a foot for it. We built two of them, and we put it, uh, we took those stray shanks off of the, uh, one of the subsoilers, factory-built subsoilers that we had, and we mounted our shanks on it, and we used a half-inch angle iron to mount them. And I told Dr. Tupper, I said, looks mighty light. Oh, yeah, it will hold. The book says it will hold. I said, Doc, I said, it probably will. 
on this sandy long soil, but you get off of Deer Creek soil, Stoneville soil, it's some tough stuff out there. Land hadn't been broken up in years. So we went about 30 feet, and he said, I think we need to go a little thicker because both all the angle lines were bent. So we went, and he said, we'll go with three-quarter inch next time. I said, no, let's go with one inch. Well, if you buy one today, it's still got one inch on it. None of them, I don't know of any that's ever bent. Uh, Subsoil really revolutionized the Delta, and we had calls from Dakotas, uh, all the different states, California, wanting this parabolic curve. Then all the manufacturers started building their own, which was good. Uh, but it really caught on good, especially in cotton land because you need a root system. Soybeans, shallow rooted, uh, the delta doesn't subsoil the soybean land as much, very little really, but the cotton farmers still use the parabolic subsoiler uh, in the fall to break up their land and absorb all that winter rainfall that's going to go down in that trench. And that soil will store it for the following summer. And it does work. We tested this thing trial after trial out of Stoneville, and you could see to the row where you ran it and where you did not run it. So it was a good thing. Uh, we also built a, <laughs> a module builder back then which was round, and it opened up, and you dumped, and it closed. Well, that worked fairly well, not as well as the conventional module builder, because on the ends, the cotton would get trapped between the doors, and cotton gets really, really strong when you put it in a bind. So we ended up cutting it up and sending it to the dump. Everything we build at Stoneville, all of all these things, all the experiments, even though the sign says experiment station, all of them don't work. But that's what we're there for. Uh, but I still use the subsoil on my farm. Uh, all the cotton farmers I know still use the subsoil, whether they irrigate it or not. Uh, I know it. My dad was the first, I'd say in, in this area here, man to use a one-shank subsoiler, which was built in Arkansas in Pine Bluff when I was a kid. It had a curve in it, similar to the parabolic curve, and uh, he put it on his OEM tractor, and he ran this thing, and at the time, he was pulling up stumps and everything else. Land had never been broken. And he did one row at a time in the fall, and nobody knew what the neighbors would come by and say, what's that you got? It's some just a one-shank breaking plow. Man, that might work. It might not. I don't know. When the next summer came, you could tell to the row where he had subsoiled and where he didn't. Where he didn't was burned up. Everything was solid back then, no skip rope. And where he ran it, it was still holding. It made twice the cotton as the non-subsold. I remember that as a kid. Uh, so some of these things work, some don't. I see all the young scientists uh, at Stoneville. One of them told me, he said, man, we're going to build this thing. We're going to use fire. 
to burn this grass because we don't have no chemicals to, to kill it. And uh, I said, yep. He said, yeah, we're going to pull it on a cultivator, we'll take the sweeps off, and we can build it. They bake these things, and they shoot out. We use a propane tank on the tractor. I said, pretty hot. Oh, yeah, it's hot. We didn't have cab tractors. He said, but you light it up with a torch, and it just blows fire, and your, your cotton stem has got to be probably a finger-size diameter because it will burn the stalk, too. But it, it's got enough bark on it that it can take it. I said, okay, we can build that. So I walked upstairs and grabbed all the old flame cultivators we had and a few new ones still up there. I said, is this what you're talking about? What is that? I said, it's a flame cultivator. We, we did this 30 years ago, <laughs> and his mouth just dropped. So we built it anyway, and, and he used it. And uh, it, it does work, and at least you do have cap tractors these days, but that's something else you end up throwing in the pile because... After all that, now you have chemical that does the same thing, and it's a whole lot cooler and safer. <laughs> uh, it, it's the John Deere planter. Uh, we took two cultivator wheels off of an old cultivator and put a, a sword in the middle, and we adjusted these two cultivator wheels up and down. We had a, a screw adjustment on them to control depth. And... The cultivator, the planters you would buy at the time, the back wheel held the planter up. And in the Delta, it would pack it too tight or not tight enough. You just couldn't control depth like you wanted. Now, if all your land was the same, it planted cotton. But anyway, we took two cultivator wheels and a sword in the middle. You adjust these cultivator wheels probably an inch, inch and a half depth. And it would hold that depth as you plant it through the field, regardless of the type of ground. And it worked really good. And the reps from John Deere, I remember, come to the station, and they took all kind of pictures of this thing. And uh, there was nothing to it, really. It's so simple. You're just controlling the depth. And uh, it took about three years. I saw a new John Deere planter. This is a revolutionary new planter. Control your depth. It was so similar to the one we built. They did it better. They had bigger gauge wheels, tighter up against. They used a double disc opener where we had old sword at the time. Same difference, but the double disc cuts a lot better. But it had stoneville written all over it. But that's what we're there for us to help the farmer. But uh, and the planters today, every brand, international, white, John Deere, you name it all use the same concept today. It came from Stoneville, whether they want to agree with that or not. I know where it came from. But uh, like I said, that was one of the things I remember so well, all the pictures they were taking, pictures they were taking of that old planter. They got on their knees looking at it. And it was so basic. And uh, I use the international planter myself, same thing. That's where you control your depth, right there, with a simple screw adjustment. Uh, that's that's uh, like I said, we built a lot of stuff that didn't work that good, uh, but uh, that's just some of the things I can remember working at Stoneville. It's a good place to work. I learned a lot there, and what I learned, I put into my farm. Uh, I still use the subsoiler 
Of course, I still use the planter. Uh, cotton seed, uh, it was $50 a sack. Now it's over 500 a sack. All the technology fees, all the new new chemistry, uh, Extend Max, uh, uh, Enlist. These things are good. I don't like it, although it does work, and that's all we have. But I just don't think it's the answer because you could kill the neighbor's garden. It's so much can go wrong. People that use it, and I can understand their reasoning, they uh, they big farmers, they've got to cover thousands of acres. All right, the wind's blowing a little too much, he can't use it. At uh, sundown of so many hours before sundown, he has to stop. I'm sure they push the envelope, and I can't blame them because they got to get over so many acres. I just don't think, I hope these chemical companies can come up with something, a chemical that will take care of this pigweed, because really that's the only problem we have. The rest we can take care of with Roundup, even though we've got Probably, I think it's up to 10 to 20 uh, grasses or weeds right now that glyphosate does not control anymore. They've grown resistant. That's just nature. But with Roundup and the chemicals we have, if they come up with something, which I talk to the scientists every day, they say there's nothing in the pipeline right now that that's going to take care of the pigweed. <clears throat> The Roundup used to smoke a pigweed. Now it won't touch it. Uh, that's the only problem the farmers have, whether it be beans, cotton, whatever, uh, is pigweed. It's a fast-growing, terrible plant. <laughs> How has this year turned out for you? This year, it really, it's been a perfect year. I needed a rain. I got it. Uh, we did get a seven-inch rain back in August that we didn't need quite that much. I guess I prayed a little too hard. <laughs> but uh, it was a little, little too much rain. I had to use a lot of picks to slow it down. These new new varieties, they call them racehorse varieties. They're really fast-growing. Uh, I used 50 ounces of picks to, to keep it down, and it, and it actually works. Uh, crop looks good. We hadn't harvested yet, but we're going to gonna try it real soon uh, but if it doesn't make this year I need to get out of it because it's been a perfect year these are two new varieties that I'm trying I hope they I hope they pan out uh, you kind of work with the chemical companies sometime and seed dealers to test some of their stuff that they claim is so good sometime yes sometime no but uh, that's all part of it. But it, it's they've been good to me, and I, I work with them. And uh, they like the small farm. When they want something sprayed, I can do it right now. Where the bigger farmer, he has to get a plane lined up for two days, and by then they've lost their interest in what they wanted to do. They they know with me before they get back to their to their headquarters, I've already done what they wanted me to do. Uh, you can do that when you're small. It, uh, like I said, it's been good. 
been bad, uh, like like all jobs. None of them are perfect. There's some good things. There's some bad things. You're not going to find a perfect job, whether it be on the farm or in the public. It doesn't matter. Could you talk a little bit about how you manage your farm, especially in terms of irrigation and row spacing? Dry land, skip row cotton. That's the only thing I ever planted. I don't have irrigation. I don't have my land farm. don't have a pivot. Uh, I plant skip row simply because it will... It will hold probably two to three feet, uh, two to three weeks longer than solid cotton until the Mississippi Delta finally gets an afternoon shower, and most of the time we do. It, uh, with solid cotton, I've seen it when Daddy farmed it years and years ago, it would totally burn up from lack of a shower. And if you did get a shower, it was a little too late, not enough. But the skip row, you have the skip row that the roots will reach out into the skips and and grab that moisture that's still and it's still hanging on. You get that rain and you still make a crop. I picked uh the worst we've ever picked on skip row cotton was probably eight hundred to eight hundred and fifty pounds without any rain from say July the uh, July the 1st until after harvest and I've had a few good years that it did rain in skip row cotton and we picked uh, over four and a half plus bales per acre that's not every year but uh, we average three four bale acre year after year if I pray a lot and get a rain (laughs) if not I don't make that good a cotton. What are your thoughts on the new picker balers? The picker balers is the best thing since sliced bread. <clears throat> International, I'm a red man. They came out with a conventional ba- uh, module builder mounted on the picker, and it took the Delta by storm. They said that's the best thing ever. You could pick and make up your, it was a half a module, like a conventional module, but half the size. <clears throat> you had to pick to the end, and if it was full, you just have to stop and deadhead to the end because it, it, it couldn't take any more cotton. But when you get to the end, you could unload this thing. It just uh, walked out of the back of it. Then you'd have to cover it like you did a conventional module with a, with a tarp. <clears throat> and we thought that was the greatest thing ever. Then John Deere comes, and all they did was take a <clears throat> a hay baler and mount it on their picker. Basically, that's what they did. Made a tougher yellow wrapper to wrap it up with, and it actually put International out of business. They don't even make pickers anymore. <clears throat> it was so revolutionary because you can make a round bale which holds approximately four bales <clears throat> and when it gets full it'll wrap it put it in the back of your picker where it carries it and you continue picking you never stop when you get to the end you hit the button you just dump it off on the end there and you got a man to go around at his convenience uh, with a tractor and a spare that picks the just like you pick up bales of hay and he'll stack them, 
uh, four in a set with a module truck to pick them up. If if he's uh, if he's using an eighteen wheeler, an eighteen wheeler will hold I think eight or nine uh, of these round bells. <clears throat> they keep the water out where the module co uh, covered bells. If it rains a lot in the delta, and it does. Even though you got it kind of on a ridge, that cotton will get wet on the bottom about six inches. <clears throat> the truck can't pick it up, <clears throat> at least half of it on the ground. The round baler, it's so tight, I don't think rain will penetrate it. Uh, you've seen the pictures of Texas with the winds and the storms. If it ever gets uncovered, conventional I'm talking about, if it ever gets uncovered, you're going to lose a lot of that cotton. Uh, it's going to fall apart and then you can't pick it up so really that John Deere hit a home run and now they've got the market uh, it was all spindle picker at first now they have the stripper which is the same picker just different heads does a great job runs four to five miles an hour one man operation all you got to do is keep it keep a roll of uh, yellow plastic in it and uh, it takes care of itself what research do you look into whenever you're making decisions on your farm? I don't trust chemical people. They, they, they make a commission. They're my friends. I listen to what they say, but I go back to Stoneville. I get the research papers and see what, what that Ph.D. said on his test. And most of the time they tell me, don't waste your money. Well, so-and-so said I could use this. He said, you're wasting your money. We cannot get any positive results by using uh, this Super X chemical. Well, he said, he said, I don't care what he said. Tell him to come talk to me. And he said, they won't do that. They are there to make a commission. They got to make a life. I understand that. These are my friends. Uh, I'll listen to what they say. That don't necessarily mean I'm going to do what they say. I'm going to check it out before I just go blowing the money. And like I said before, <clears throat> I've seen chemical in the 60s that just took the Delta. Man, that's the greatest thing ever. Right now, you couldn't give it away. It wasn't that great. It just took their money. I never did jump on that bandwagon. Stonewall says, don't waste your money. I said, well, so-and-so, I don't care what he said. It didn't work mm -hmm. on our test plus. So I, I trust what they say because they're going to get the same check month after month at, at Stonewall. They're working for the people. They trying to, they using these tests to get results. If they get results, I listen to them and I will do it. If it's just flat or negative, no, I'm not going to use it. What do you think is the brightest spot in farming right now? Right now, nothing's really bright because of the tariffs. Soybean corn farmers are worried that uh, man, I've got all this in the in the bins. <clears throat> we can't sell it. I'm all for Trump, and, and I know what he's doing. Farmers just gonna have to suffer a little bit if they can go through this this uh, spell and and make it. Uh, I think all this will settle down, but I'm sure right now the bean and corn farmers and cotton farmers, we got all this cotton crop coming out. China was a big buyer of cotton. Well, they've kind of cut us off now. They're getting from uh, Australia or wherever. 
But all that's going to work out, I believe. It's just going to, farmers are kind of hurting from the tariffs. They're just taking the blunt of it. Where the common man, he doesn't know any difference. But uh, I don't think there's really a really bright spot right now if you talk to a bean farmer, a corn farmer, or a cotton farmer, although the yields are tremendous in all crops in the Delta right now. Uh, they still got to pay that rent. They better be cutting that 60, 80, 90 bushel beans, which I think they are. Uh, <clears throat> so that's going to kind of offset some of the price thing. If you make more cotton or more beans, you can, you can live through it. But, uh, yeah, they, they'd love to see uh, 10 $12 beans at uh, 80 bushels per acre. That's all gravy now. All the glitter is not gold. Is there anything that you think is especially exciting in farming right now? I get excited with the cotton. Uh, I'm just not a bean or corn farmer, but I see some beautiful fields of beans. I've never seen, with the technology, which I don't like, but it does work, the cleanest delta I've seen in years uh, with this dicomber and, and list. Uh, and the yields, like I said, I can see the, I'm not a bean farmer, but I can, I can see how good it is. It's great. Uh, they're going to do well. Everybody's going to come out well. Uh, I don't think these folks that t- keep telling me for the last three years, we're going to get into cotton. They hadn't gotten into it yet, and I don't think they'll get into it next year because this tariff thing is going to work, work itself out. And uh, if they can get, if they can cut beans like they're cutting now and get $9, $10 again, they'll forget about cotton. Texas has got the cotton, and that's the way it's going to be. Here we got all the water we need, more than enough water, plus we get rains, sometimes too much water. Texas, they praying for rain every day. We go down 80 feet, we got all the water we need. They go down 1,000 feet, and they still don't have water. It, run, it runs dry in a few years. Ours never run dry. Uh, but they they good farmers in Texas, or they wouldn't still be here. Wind blows too hard in Texas for me. I would not live there. The Delta is a fine place to live. We have lots of mosquitoes, but we have lots of water. We can grow any crop we want to grow. Uh, where Texas, I asked uh, a friend, I said, what's your alternate crop in Texas? He said, cotton. So that's what they're going to do is plant cotton. And I told him year after year, y'all going to put us out of business, and they're just about there. <laughs> so they're going to raise the cotton. We're going to raise the some cotton and some beans and some corn. Uh, Georgia's going to raise some cotton. Arkansas, some cotton. And Louisiana, some. Tennessee, some. When it gets down to it, Texas is the market maker. They're going to control the price because they got the best hand. Uh, Farmers, like I said, in the Delta that into cotton, they're not getting out. One big cotton farmer told me, soybeans will eventually put you out of business. And a year like, if the yields were down this year with the price down, he would have been absolutely right. It meant some young farmers going out of business. 
But thank goodness that they are picking great yields, cutting great yields this year. So that's what's going to keep them in business, the yields. How has cotton acreage changed where you farm within the last 10 years or so? It's mostly big farmers now. Uh, Younger farmers grew up with their dads. The dads had a thousand acres. The younger farmers now have two to three thousand. They've gotten bigger and bigger. All the small farmers, <clears throat> except me, are gone. <laughs> and uh, it's just because volume. You got to, if you buy a tractor, which I cannot afford, a new John Deere tractor, front wheel assist, is probably a quarter of a million dollars. You have to be able to use it. So they get acres in order to justify paying for this tractor that they have to have to pull the big wide equipment. Uh, a lot of them rent the tractors. Uh, I say it all the time, all the glitter is not gold. They may look really good with new combines, new tractors. That don't mean they're paid for. They rent them, they pay notes, now that beans and corn, the prices dwindled down to where it used to be years ago. And the younger farmers, really they don't know how to raise cotton. They strictly saw being corn farmers because that's what they grew up with. Uh, where they used to be the cotton capital of the world right here in the Delta, you have to hunt for a cotton field. All you can find is corn and beans. And they've done, the young farmers have done a really good job with with the with the techniques, uh, the yields are up, the crops are clean with the new technologies. Uh, a lot of them tell me, man, we cannot make it on uh, corn and beans now. Well, beans were were uh, sub fifteen to seventeen dollars a bushel, and corn was eight nine dollars. Now, beans are eight eight fifty a bushel, half. And corn is three, three and a half a bushel. I mean, we cannot make it paying rent and, and trying to make it. But the yields are up. We're going to get into cotton. I tell them, I said, you better think twice before you just jump into cotton. If you're going to get into cotton, you need to be there for the long haul. Just because your daddy raised cotton, that's all that was in the Delta was cotton. <clears throat> but to tie up a half to three, million, three quarters of a million dollars for a cotton picker, that only does one thing is pick cotton for two to three weeks in the fall, then it's parked. Can you justify tying up that much money with your combine? It will cut beans, corn, uh, rice, or whatever. Uh, you can utilize that money. I so you need to think twice. And cotton prices, yeah, they're up a little now, but they can be down to 50 cents in two weeks. I've never seen cotton stay at a good level. Beans have been in that $10 range, and if it weren't for the tariffs, tariffs they'd still be in the $10, $12 range. Cotton fluctuates a bunch. Uh, I, don't, I don't advise them. Uh, the few big cotton farmers we have, they have been in it for a number of years, and they plan on staying in it, and they all own one, two, or three of these pickers. And more than likely, most of it is probably paid for or close to being paid for, but they got to have them to get four to 5,000 acres of cotton out. They're in it for the long haul. Don't think you're going to just get in cotton for one year and get out. It just don't work. 
And that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening to Farming on Mars. Again, thank you to Cody West for allowing me to use his song Melody. Please go check out his album called Green. You definitely won't regret it. Well, I hope you all enjoyed this week's episode with Mr. James Santusi as much as I did. And remember to check back again next week for another great episode about the people of the plains. I don't know the answers, but the questions. Be-